God is always faithful to his word. God is always faithful to his word. If God has said something will occur, he is faithful to seeing it occur. You can trust him in that. He is always faithful to his word. Supremely, we've seen that in the person of Jesus Christ, where God promised through the entire Old Testament that one day Messiah, Christ, Redeemer would come, where one day God would send a deliverer for his people, and Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in every way, both by keeping the law and by being that which the law always promised. And so Jesus shows up on the scene. He's the fulfillment of the law as the Messiah, as the Christ. And gloriously, he loves to save. Loves to save. Now, simply, how are you saved? How are you saved? If today you were to describe to someone how are they saved, what would you say to them? How is someone saved? How are you saved? You see, as Christians, we often get this really confused. Now, we may not in the initial answer. Salvation is believing on Christ. It's taking whatever you were believing in, whatever you were hoping in, whatever you were trusting in, it's renouncing it, that's repentance, and it's turning to Christ to believe in him, to repent as you repent, as your hope, as the one you can trust. That's why John, as he's talking uh, um, in his gospel, the theme of the gospel of John is belief. You see it in chapter 1. Right? Where Jesus was sent so that we could believe on him. All those who believe on him. John 3, where Jesus is encountering with Nicodemus. Believe. For God so loved the world, he sent his one and only son, that anyone, anywhere, anytime who believes on him will not perish or die, but will have eternal life. And so we believe on him. And in believing on him, we're saved. And we know that's true, but then we slip into bad habits. We end up in a sinful moment and feel like we're less saved today than we were yesterday. You cannot be less saved or more saved. You either are saved or you aren't saved. I'm not more saved tomorrow than I am today. I am seen by God as someone who's either saved or not saved. That doesn't mean we can't walk in further obedience. It doesn't mean we can't grow in our Christ-likeness. But in terms of salvation, it's not like you're more saved one day and less saved a different day. And yet this is what happens. We move into these legalistic modes where in moving into these legalistic modes, we feel like if I only am doing these practices and performing these ways and keeping these rituals, and God has more favor upon me. God cannot grant you any more favor in terms of your salvation than what he's already done in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's not to say that God doesn't do continual works in your life. It's just to say no one is more or less saved one day over another. You are saved. And you're saved by the accomplished work of Christ. But we constantly slip into legalism. I'll come back to this at the end. So if you have your Bibles, Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac. Genesis 21, beginning at verse 1. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he had said. The Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at that very time God had promised him. Did you note that? Three times. As he had said, as he had promised, God had promised him. Three times God's talking about the fulfillment of his word. 
Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, who would have said to Abraham and Sarah, to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. So here three times you have God saying, I did what I said. I did what I promised. Gracious to Sarah as he said. The Lord did for Sarah as he promised. God bore Abraham a son as God had promised him. Three times. We have very clear that God fulfills his word. His promises are true and certain. They are dependable. You can depend on whatever God has said. Secondly, note the name of the son. It's Isaac. Isaac means brings laughter. That means every time they saw their son, they were probably reminded of two things. The first is this, that they had laughed at God. Abraham had laughed at God at one point in time. Oh, come on. Am I really going to have a son in my old age? And then Sarah laughed at God. Could this really be true of me now? Like, God, you promised this decades ago. Really now, God, now? So every time they would call his name Isaac, Isaac, laughter. They'd be reminded of the fact that they mocked God. But they'd also be reminded of the fact that God granted them great joy and laughter, as Sarah's saying here. And the fact that God in their old age fulfilled his promise. He's true, he's certain, he's dependable. And every time they'd call his name, they'd laugh with joy, reminding themselves that God granted them a son in their old age. So even in their doubt, God is faithful to his promise. He circumcised on the eighth day as was commanded. And it's a birth of the miraculous. You see this here with, with Sarah, verse 6 and 7. Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Like when it seemed impossible. Abraham, verse 5, was 100 years old. And so it's a divine gift from God. Verse 8. The child grew and was weaned. And on the day Isaac was weaned, Abraham, Abraham held a great feast. Now I commented on this in the first service. Amy and I have had four children. She's weaned all four of them. People in the first service were glad I said that. Um, none of them are still breastfed. Um, and uh, Abraham had a weaning party. I've never been invited to a weaning party ever in my life. I've never hosted one, never been invited to one. Now, here's what happened after the first service. One of the guys came up to me. They've just had their fourth kid and uh, currently being breastfed and said, we're, we're going to have the first weaning party at James Norris. We're so excited. They were telling me outside, he said, because if I say it out here, there's a group. It means I am going to do it. I can't wait. Like, we're going to have a big weaning party. Four kids. We're done. Some of you are guessing who it is. I'm just going to say it. It was Jordan Swisser. You can tell him I said it. And uh, he was so excited. He's like, he's like, he's just announcing it outside. We're going to have a big weaning party when this is done. We don't have weaning parties today. Now, Jordan might, and he's going to say, I can't wait to say to my parents, it's in the Bible. What I'm doing is biblical. His parents and Courtney's are godly people who both love the Lord. So Isaac's being weaned, and there's a great feast. Verse 9, but Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, remember when Abraham and Sarah were in Egypt, and Abram said, Sarah's my sister. This is likely where they ended up with Hagar. Um, and then when they couldn't have child, Sarah said, you should sleep with her and have a baby. When Sarah saw the son whom Hagar, the Egyptian, had borne to Abraham was mocking, she said to Abraham, 
Get rid of the slave woman and your son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. The matter greatly distressed Abraham because it concerned his son. But God said to him, do not be so distressed about your boy and the slave woman. Listen to whatever God tells you, because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. And I will make the son of the slave into a nation also. He is your offspring. A couple of thoughts here. Here Isaac is mocking, sorry, Ishmael is mocking Isaac. We don't know what's happening. Isaac is likely two as he's being weaned. Typically in their tradition that would be the case which makes Ishmael 16. So they're at the party, celebrations going on, older brothers with his younger brother, right? Half-brothers. And the 16-year-old is mocking the two-year-old. Um, we'll look at this later on in, in Galatians 4 as well. And as that's occurring, Sarah says, enough, get rid of them, Abraham. And last time when Sarah kicked them out, God brought them back, Hagar and Ishmael. But this time, God says to Abraham, let them go. Now, Abraham's greatly distressed because for the first 14 years of Ishmael's life, and I know this really struck some of you as odd the other time. You hadn't heard it before, but Abraham, of course, treated him as a son because he is his son. Ishmael was likely at all the family dinners, like nightly. Abraham played catch with him. Abraham hung out with him. Abraham taught him the family business. I mean, Abraham is a wealthy man. We're going to get in a few minutes to the encounter with Abraham and Abimelech. Abimelech is the king of the Philistines. Abraham is living in his land. And the king comes with Abraham to negotiate because the king is afraid of Abraham. The king shouldn't be afraid of anyone. But Abraham is so powerful, is so wealthy, that even the king of the land where Abraham is living fears him. And so he has this huge, right? I mean, he had, he had a secret service department. When Lot's been captured, Abraham's like, hey, guys, over here, secret servicemen. Yeah, I want you to go rescue Lot. And they went out and rescued Lot against the might of armies. I mean, that's, that's some secret service department going on. I mean, I don't have a secret service department in my house unless Ethan's doing something on the side I don't know about. Maybe it's Abby. Um, but with that said... Right? That's how wealthy and powerful Abraham is. And he was teaching Ishmael all the ways of him. How to run a family, how to run a household, how to grow up, how to... And he's greatly distressed because now he's going to send his son out. And Hagar, who he also cared for. But God has said, you are to do this as well. And so Abraham obeys. Now note, God promises that I will also make Ishmael into a great nation. That was promised earlier to Hagar. It's now promised again to Abraham. So early the next morning, Abraham took some food um, and, and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar. He set them on her shoulders and sent her off with the boy. She went on her way and wandered in the desert of Beersheba. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the boy under one of the bushes. She went off and sat down about a bow shot away, so probably like a, like a field away. For she thought, I cannot watch him die. As she sat there, she began to sob. God heard the boy crying. Note that. That's interesting. She was sobbing. God heard Ishmael's cry. The angel of the Lord then called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift him up. Take him by the hand. I will make him into a great nation. So they get there, and I believe they're just overwhelmed. I mean, 
Ishmael's gone. His dad has just sent him out. Many of us in times of transition in life are overwhelmed. Ishmael wasn't expecting this. Likely he's 16 and his dad has said, you're gone. Here's some food, here's some water, but you're gone. And you're banished from my house not to return. And Ishmael loved his dad. And yet he was of the age now where he could care for his mom. And in the overwhelming emotion, I think, of the moment, he's just there weeping. I mean, they've run out of food. They're there. It's just awful. And he's weeping, and God hears his cry. This is why I actually believe we'll see Ishmael and Hagar in heaven. God speaks to Hagar on a couple of occasions, and here you have God caring for Ishmael. In a minute, you'll hear the passage talking about how God is with Ishmael as he continues to grow up. Now, some of you have in mind Galatians 4, as I say that, and you're wondering why I will say that. Others of you are wondering why people might be thinking about Galatians 4. You're like, what? Galatians 4? So we'll get to that in a few minutes, all right? So that you know why people are thinking about Galatians 4, and you're not yet, but you will be by the end. And so what happens is this. He says, lift the boy up. Hagar, he's not saying to her, pick him up in your hands. He's saying, give him your hand and, 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 and get him up, because he will be a great nation. He reiterates that promise to his mom. Then God opened her eyes. She sees a well of water. She goes over, fills the skin with water, and gives him a drink. God was with Ishmael as he grew up. And he lived in the desert. He became an archer. While he was living in the desert of Paran, his mother got a wife for him from Egypt. So God is with the boy as he, as he grows up. Again, I, I've read scripture a number of times in my life, but I noticed this for the first time this week. That we don't see Ishmael again, I knew that, but until Abraham's death. And Ishmael and Isaac are both at Abraham's funeral. They both show up to bury dad. Just an important point, I think, to note of the significance of Abraham in his life. At that time, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of the forces, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Go show me the country to where you now reside as a foreigner. Sorry, show me and the country where you now reside as a foreigner the same kindness I have shown you. And Abraham said, I swear it. You see how powerful Abraham is? He says to Abraham, the king says to Abraham, would you show me and my country the same kindness I have shown you? Abraham is an incredibly powerful man. Incredibly powerful. With his own secret service with huge amount of herds, with a massive household, massive household, from those that are now part of his household and slaves that he has with him. Then Abraham complained to Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized. But Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this. You didn't tell me. I've only heard about it today. Abraham, to be honest with you, this is news to me. I haven't heard about this before. So Abraham brought sheep and cattle, gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a treaty. Abraham set apart seven ewe lambs from the flock, and Abimelech asked Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs you've set apart by themselves? He replied, accept these seven lambs from my hand as a witness that I dug this well. He said, here's payment. I know it's my well, but I'm going to even pay you for the well and pay you well for the well. So the place was called Beersheba because the two men swore an oath there. After the treaty had been made, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of the forces, returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tree there and called on the name of the Lord. He worshipped him, the eternal God. And Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for a long time. 
So two things that Abimelech says about Abraham. One is this. God is with you. He knows that God is with Abraham. The second is this. I can't trust you. Is that not fascinating? Abraham, you lied to me. We looked at this a number of weeks ago. I didn't look at it last week. But in chapter 20, Abimelech, where Abraham is with the king of the Philistines, Abraham lies again about Sarah and says, she's my sister. She's my sister. And Abimelech knows Abraham to be two things. One, a man that God is with. Two, a liar. He's a deceiver. And so, in this moment, Abimelech says, I can't trust you, and so I want to make sure that we have a contract. We have an oath. And so they do that. And then Abraham, as part of that oath, plants a tree, which represents the long-lasting uh, uh, mark of God's treaty there and God's faithfulness. Now, I just need to pause there for a moment in the story of Abraham, because in the next couple of weeks, we're going to transition entirely to Isaac and say, how do we understand this in light of Romans 4? So I'm not yet to Galatians 4, but Romans 4, verse 18. Listen. Against all hope, Abraham, in hope, believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness, the words it was credited to him were written not only for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. So pause there for a moment. Think about the life of Abraham. Does this seem true of him? Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, without weakening in his faith. He did not waver in unbelief. He was fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he promised. Does that remind you of Abraham? Twice. She's not my wife. She's my sister. Twice. She's not my wife. She's my sister. A son at my age? <laughs> Hagar, that's a good idea, Sarah. I'll sleep with her. And we'll have a baby. Does that not seem like wavering, doubt, disbelief? So what in the world is going on here? I mean, did Paul not read Genesis the way we read Genesis? Is he confused? I mean, how can Paul say that this is true of Abraham when we've read the very opposite? Because of the hope we have in the gospel. Paul explains it. The apostle says, and you go back and listen to the sermon on Romans 4 from our series a couple of years ago. But Paul explains it. He says, I want you to know this. The words it was credited to him were written not only for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. God will grant us righteousness. It's for any who believe in him, who raised that, who, sorry, who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sin and was raised to life for our justification. Here's what's happening. We are so completely and utterly saved that God no longer sees our sin. Is that not good news? That's why Hebrews can say that he has made perfect those he is making holy. 
When God looks at us, for any who's believed, for any who've turned from the things they've trusted in and turned to Christ, God will say, when I see you because of the work of my son and his shed blood, I see Jesus. That is good news. Because only that which is perfect, only that which is unblemished, only that which is holy can ever enter into heaven. The problem is we are blemished, we aren't perfect, and we aren't holy. But in Christ, his work is so perfect, so accomplished, so covers our sin. Christ, Christ, so takes our sin upon himself on the cross that our sins and lawless acts, this is the book of Hebrews, he remembers no more. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our sin from us. For anyone who has believed that Jesus not only died for us, but was raised to life again. That is the good news of the gospel. That is our hope. Our hope right there. My hope isn't in that I had a better day reading the Bible today. My hope isn't in that I showed up at church. My hope isn't in that I prayed, though all of those things are good. My hope is in what Jesus Christ has done. My hope is in Christ and him alone. It's Jesus. And he credits to us our righteousness. He takes our sin upon himself and he grants us his righteousness so that on that judgment day when I stand before him, God will say, I don't see your sin. I only see my son. Praise his name. That is the gospel we have believed in. That I could not save myself, but God gloriously did it. So then Galatians quickly. Chapter 4, verse 21. The apostle says, so tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. So just pause there for a moment. Paul's writing to the church in Galatia. It's filled with Judaizers. Like no other book in the Bible, Paul defends his apostleship here. The first two chapters are Paul really defending his apostleship, saying he's a true apostle. The Judaizers are saying you need to have Jesus plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Oh, you haven't been snipped. You can't come in. Jesus plus the Mosaic law. Jesus plus the Old Testament. That's what the Bible's saying. And Paul's not doing away with the Old Testament. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But these are the books in which we have an understanding of how we relate to the Mosaic law, of how we understand the Old Testament. So it's written that Abraham has two sons, one by slave woman, the other by free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but the son of the free woman was born according to divine promise. She says, you guys are saying you're the son of Abraham. What he's going to do now is he's going to say, you're the sons of Ishmael, not the sons of Isaac. Because, of course, as, as the Judaizers, they would claim lineage through Isaac, the seed of promise. And Paul's about to say, no, you're of the seed of Isaac. Because what you're offering is law, not gospel. What you're offering is slavery, not freedom. And then he says there's two ways these kids were born. One was by flesh. Abraham could have kids. You'll see that after Sarah dies. Abraham has lots more kids after Sarah dies. So here we go. He sleeps with Hagar. Gets her pregnant. One by the flesh. The other by divine promise. Only God could open the womb of a 90-year-old woman to be able to have a baby. Now, these things are taken figuratively, or I would like to say better translated allegorically. 
The women represent two covenants. So he's not saying this means Ishmael didn't know the Lord and Hagar did. I believe they did the Lord. He is saying, I want to use these two as an example so we have a better understanding of how we relate to the Old Testament. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. So he says these two women each represent a covenant. The one covenant is what? The covenant of Sinai. What's the covenant of Sinai? That's where God granted the Ten Commandments. That's the law. So he says one is law and Hagar represents the law in Arabia. It corresponds with the present city of Jerusalem. Paul says this is the earthly city of Jerusalem where everyone who is a Jew assumes they're saved. But because you live in Jerusalem and because you're a Jew, it doesn't make you saved. It doesn't. That's why Paul goes on and says, I'm talking about Jerusalem that's from above. I'm talking about the spiritual Jerusalem. You think you're saved because you've done the right things. You've acted in the right ways. You've followed the law of God. The law of God was never to show us that we could be saved. The law of God was given to show us we couldn't, or sorry, we needed to be saved. The law of God wasn't given to show us that we could save ourselves. The law of God was given to show us our need for salvation. The law of God was given to us not so that anyone could follow it completely and save themselves. We can't follow the law of God completely. That's why James says when you break it at one point, you've broken the whole law. The law was given us to show our desperate need for salvation. We need a savior. So he says to the Judaizers, when you're clinging to the law, you're clinging to the wrong thing. The law only enslaves you further. The law only legalistically impairs you. Grace is what you need, and that's the freedom you have when you come to Christ. And he says, Hagar's line through Ishmael represents that. Now, you know this, right? The Muslims claim who through Abraham's line? Ishmael. We follow Isaac, they follow Ishmael. They claim Ishmael as the true son of Abraham. That's why they believe when we get to this next week, or two weeks, um, next, next week, it's next week, that it's Ishmael that Abraham takes up on the mountain, not Isaac. That's Isaac who is sent away. I mean, you can read through all that. But here the point Paul's making is that there is a spiritual reality. And that spiritual reality is what makes us God's children. For it is written, he quotes them, Be glad, barren women, for you never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. He says, I want you to know that the spiritual reality of what God has done is greater than any fleshly reality he could have done. Because God is saving people from every nation, language, tongue, and tribe. Because the Judaizers were all about, well, we're Jewish. We're Jewish. We're Jewish. And so we're God's people. And Paul is saying, I'm Jewish. And I was the Pharisee of Pharisees. And I wasn't saved. I didn't know the Lord. I didn't know him. I couldn't know him. Because the law I followed was only used by God to show me my need for him. And my need for him was in the one I was persecuting, Jesus Christ, the Lord. 
Now, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, the children of promise, that's what he's saying. Brothers and sisters, we are now children of promise. We're now grafted in spiritually. At that time, the son was born according to the flesh. Um, at that time, sorry, the, the son who was born according to the flesh, he persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. So he's referring to the passage we just looked at, the mocking there. It is the same now. What does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not of the slave woman, but we are of the free woman. He said there are two covenants that God has given. The old and the new covenant. I mean, if you look at Hebrews, it's why God says I had to obliterate the old covenant. Because the old covenant was unable to save, and it was never intended to save. The old covenant was only to point everyone to the desperate need for a savior. Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. And then Messiah came in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we see that in that there is a new covenant where we become the children of promise for anyone who believes. God grafts anyone, anywhere, anytime on this planet, adoption into his family when they turn from whatever they were believing in and trusting in and hoping in it, and they turn to Christ to believe and hope in him. It is the good news of the gospel that God is willing to save anyone, anywhere, anytime, any place. And then we slip into our legalistic moments thinking that tomorrow I might feel a bit more saved because of how I've lived. You will never be more saved tomorrow than you are today. That doesn't mean you can't experience a greater fullness of the work of God in your life. I'm not saying that. It doesn't mean you won't grow in your Christ-likeness. But if today any of us who know the Lord were to die on the way home, God forbid it, we are just as saved and sheltered by the accomplished work of Christ and his shed blood than if it were to happen 10 years from now. Is that not good news? Because he fully saves. He fully saves. Jesse, you guys can come up. So how does this happen today? Really quickly, because I'm a little over time. How does this happen today? Many of you know I've been meeting with some pastors in the city. We've been walking with a pastor in the city who's come to a um, traditional church that is split. The traditional church is about 50% evangelical, about 50% liberal. And last year, they went through an investigation over his ministry. These are some of the charges. Ready? Against him and his ministry. He uses the Bible too much. He uses the Bible too much. That's one of his charges. Ready for another one? He talks about Jesus too much. Talks way too much about Jesus. I mean, where are we? How can these people claim salvation and declare that he talks about Jesus and uses the Bible too much? Too much. Too much. And so there's a battle that ensues. And when you talk to them, why? Why, why are they stuck in the race? Why do they want to get rid of them? These are, these are some of the words that are used. Because this is our church. What? It's not your church, it's God's church. Because this is our church. Because we give here. Like that grants you ownership to something? What, like what in the world? There's nothing spiritual about what half of this group is saying. And there's a battle for the soul of one of the churches of our city that a group of us have now gotten involved in to walk alongside of them. We're not sure if we're going to win this. I mean, we know God's going to come out on top. We might lose the building. There's a massive amount of money and a trust in the building. It might all be gone. But 
We're concerned about the spiritual health of a group that's there and walking alongside of a pastor that needs a group to walk alongside of it. And so people will say even today, well, I go to church, I give money, I do this, and stop. None of that saves you. Showing up at a small group doesn't save you. What saves you? I realized that I was bankrupt and everything I believed in could not offer me salvation. And I repented of that and turned to Jesus Christ and him alone to save me. That's what saves us. And we are so saved by what Christ does under this new covenant of gospel and grace. That when the day comes that Christ returns, he will not condemn us for our sin. Is that not good news? But he will welcome us into glory. And even today when he sees you, he knows this, or he says this. There is no condemnation for you. You are in Christ Jesus. You've trusted my son and believe on him. Would you pray with me? We are so thankful, O oh God, for your grace in our lives. And we are reminiscent this day of your incredible care and compassion toward us in the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're thankful for your care of Hagar and Ishmael, even in the desert, how you provided because you care for the desolate. You care for those who are marginalized. And we're thankful, God, for your incredible work through the life of Isaac and Abraham. And how through them, God, you chose to grant yourself a seed, a spiritual seed, where one day you, the Lord Jesus, would come to die for our sin on the third day because you'd never sinned, be raised again, so that anyone who would believe in you anywhere, any place, any time, could be saved. For that, we are ever thankful. For your work in our lives in that way, we say, God, praise your name. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.